What a line. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. I don't know about you, but I do not like it when people are angry with me. I don't like being angry myself. It's one of the sins that I've had to fight over the years, battle. But I don't like people being angry with me, and certainly none of us can be comfortable with the idea that God himself could not only be angry with us, but that he could be justifiably, rightly angry with us. So as we look at this text this morning, let's ask this first question, what could make God this angry? And the answer is pretty plain, isn't it? In a word, what makes God this angry is sin. Moses says to the people, and it's of course said several times throughout the text, but in verse 30, you have sinned a great sin. You want to come up with another word for it? We can use all sorts of words for sin, but down at the bottom, that's what it is. It's trespassing against the command of God, turning aside, as God himself describes it, from the words that he had given to them. Now, in one sense, of course, we can look at this idea of sin and say that sin is sin. It doesn't matter what kind of sin it is. Sin is sin. Whether you're talking about eating a forbidden fruit, murdering your brother, Genesis chapter 4, or in this case, creating a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping that golden calf. That said, some sins are great sins, and this was a great sin. Now, how does something get to be a great sin and not just a sin? both of which make God angry, but a great sin causes judgment like this. Well, by virtue of several factors. First of all, by virtue of who did it? By whom was the sin committed? And in this case, the sin is committed by Israel, apparently all of them, and by the leadership, Aaron, who fashions this and who doesn't keep the people under control, as is noted in the text itself. A sin becomes great by virtue of when it is done. In this case, the sin is magnified by the fact that it is occurring at exactly the same time when Moses is on the top of the mountain receiving the great instruction from God about how he is going to dwell with his people. And then under, at the bottom of the mountain, all of this is occurring. Or, or, or we can broaden out the when, and of course, the sin is heightened given the timing of all that God had just accomplished for them in delivering them out of Egypt and performing the various signs and wonders that he had already along the way. This was a denial of God. It was a denial of all that he had done for them. It was a bold statement on the part of the people that we will worship what we want to worship, whom we want to worship, and we will worship how we want to worship. Worship is the issue in this text. 
we human beings, we people are inevitably worshipers. We will bow the knee, whether literally or figuratively, we will bow the knee to something or to someone. Even when we say, I won't bow down to anything, we have become, ironically enough, worshipers of ourselves. We have set then ourselves up as the object of our worship, as the idol of our worship. We have been created to worship, and in the absence of Moses, as he is up on the mountain for an extended time, there is a vacuum of worship that is created. And it is, for the people, uncomfortable. It is disorienting for them to have Moses gone and this time of silence, relatively speaking. And so they fill the vacuum with the golden calf. They ignore the commands and the instructions that God had just given them. They ignore all of the things that God had done for them. And perhaps among the most egregious things that they do is they ignore their very own statements that they have made just a couple of chapters prior to this. All that the Lord has said, we will do. They forget about the vows that they have made, the promises of obedience that they made when they first heard these commands from God. It's a shocking story. When you read it, I I, I don't know about you, but when you read it, I think it's almost difficult to believe because the rebellion is so blatant and the timing is so awful that you kind of look at it and go, no way. You couldn't have done this, this quickly, this badly, after all that God had done for you. It's deadly serious, and it's true, but in a way, it almost seems like a cartoon in which all of the features are exaggerated. All of them are almost larger than life to highlight what is happening. And especially, and I tried to read it this way so that we would pick it up, but especially in verse 24, when Moses has asked Aaron, giving him, in effect, an opportunity to both describe and to confess and to acknowledge what he did, what happened, and his complicity in it. But when he says, they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. You, you look at that, and, and you're just amazed by how he could even make this statement. This, I mean, proverbially, right? This is like a kid with his hand in the cookie jar. Aaron is dead to rights. His hand is in the cookie jar, but when you ask him, when you confront him about it, he says, listen, my hand was just there. My brother took the cookie jar. He brought it over, and he sat it directly under my hand. That's what Aaron is, in effect, saying about this golden cat. Just threw it in the fire, and out this thing popped. What do you think was the expression on Moses' face when Aaron gave him that line. What did he do? 
Did he just turn away in disgust? Did he say, really? That's your story? This, this is what you're going to give me. Now, mind you, I've been communicating with God on the mountain. You're going to stick with this story. Out came the calf. The scene is larger than life. Ridiculous. And yet it's no joke. This is the, the event. The event. Now, there are others that are used as paradigms throughout Scripture. Scripture comes back to them time and time again. But I'm not sure, I mean, I didn't add it up or, or anything like that, but I'm not sure if there are any that are more referred to than this one to show us the dynamics of sin, the way that sin works in our hearts, the enormity of sin, the monstrosity of sin. And it's not just the enormity or the monstrosity of sin in general, of their sin in particular. It is, of course, the, the anatomy of our sin. It's the anatomy of your sin. It is the anatomy of my sin. And because it is larger than life, it affords us the opportunity to lay it up against as a template against our own lives and see how quickly we fall into the same types of patterns, even though we would like to deny that this type of rebellion is characteristic of us. My sin is this blatant, it is this plain, it is this foolish in the eyes of God. And whatever reasons slash excuses slash explanations, justifications that I try to provide for my sins, they are as flimsy as out pop the calf. They're as useless in providing a defense for me as that phrase is for Aaron. We, yes they, we though, have become corrupt. And to use God's words in verse 7, it's reflexive. We, we have corrupted ourselves. We have not only become corrupt because something was added to us, we've corrupted ourselves. It's the same description, by the way, that is found in Genesis chapter 6 prior to the flood the corruption that existed on the earth, the corruption that exists within the heart of mankind. And in various places of Scripture, in the Psalms, in Romans 1, the summary statement is made. They, that is to say all of us, all of humanity, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, whether that creature be something of their own making or themselves or ourselves. Stephen, when he is giving his defense in his martyrdom in Acts chapter 7, refers back to this. And he says, they 
where we rejoiced in and worshipped the work of our hands. Whatever our idols look like. We broke the law. And at the heart of this passage is the great visual demonstration of that reality. So Moses comes down the mountain with the tablets. How many times does it say it within those few verses that I read? Emphasizing that these are the tablets that have on them the writing of God, the writing that God wrote, the engraving that God gave, the tablets. Speaking of emphasis. And God, through Moses, communicates that you have broken this covenant. And he throws it down. And he breaks in pieces to show what, in fact, the people have done by their sin. Now, let me connect this with something in the New Testament just for a moment. At the outset of his ministry, Jesus is tempted by Satan. And as he is tempted by Satan, when push comes to shove and the last temptation is put before Jesus by Satan, the temptation is, worship me. Worship me, and I'll give it all to you. Worship is the question. The cause of the anger is sin. It's our sin. But now we've got to look at this anger itself. How do you comprehend the anger of God? That God is angry is clear. It is said repeatedly in the text. Both God says it and Moses says it. My wrath. I want my wrath to burn. Your burning anger, Moses calls it. What God wants to do to the people is equally clear. He wants to consume them. He wants to bring disaster on them. He wants to start afresh with Moses. He has done it before and started afresh with Noah. The words here, I'll make a great nation of you, those are Abrahamic words. This is no idle threat. God has started from a person and his family before and threatens to do so again. In his perfect anger, his righteous anger, God wants to judge and condemn them for their sins immediately and comprehensively. Deal with it. In one fell swoop, Moses appears, relatively speaking, calm and reasonable. Moses intercedes with God, but the text indicates to us that at that point, Moses hadn't come down from the mountain. Moses hadn't seen what was happening. When Moses comes down and he sees what is happening, his anger burns hot. And Aaron has to say, let my Lord not be so angry with me. God is angry with sinners and our sin. I know there are times, we all know there are times when we need to separate those things. And we need to love a person despite the sin. 
But we have to see this as God sees it. God doesn't separate. He doesn't say, I'm angry with the sin of these people, but I'm not angry with them. God is angry with sinners and their sin. And he's going to judge and condemn sinners and their sin. Together. However, however strange and confusing, however troubling and arcane, we may find the idea of God's anger. It is real and it is justified. The anger of God rests on every one of us unless and until something is done about it. The Bible story makes no sense without understanding and feeling something of the anger of God. The cross of our Lord Jesus makes absolutely no sense. It is a complete mystery unless by the grace of God through the working of His Holy Spirit I experience something of my sin and my guilt and the anger, God's righteous anger on me. And instead of being poured out on me, that anger I see it on the cross poured out on Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, instead of me. I have to feel the weight of the anger of God, and alas, it is a weight that is unbearable. We with the Israelites were and are on the brink of destruction Destruction that we earn, destruction that we deserve. Sinners in the hands of an angry God is not merely a relic of a sermon from American history by someone very smart. It is a statement of the natural condition of a sinner before a holy God. And God disowns his people. Leave me alone. And then to Moses. Again, I tried to emphasize it in the reading. To Moses, your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, they have done this. What could change the situation? How can the wrath be restrained, assuaged, abated, placated? Or to use the biblical theological word, How can the wrath of God be propitiated? When Saul was angry, David sang him a song, played for him. A song doesn't look like it'll do it in this situation. In fact, it seems to be part of the problem. Now, if you answer the question quickly from Exodus, we might say, well, the tabernacle the sacrifices and the priesthood, this is the way that God deals with sin and its consequences. But we have two problems with saying that. Problem number one is that as we have talked about throughout our discussion of the tabernacle, there's an inadequacy in that system. 
even though that system has been appointed by God. We've talked about that. But the second problem is this is where our sequencing of events is important. There is no tabernacle to deal with this problem at this point. There's nothing there. There's no place to go and offer the appointed sacrifices at the appointed time, in the appointed place, in the appointed way. As the temptation of Jesus was an effect to sabotage redemption before the ministry of Jesus got started, so the sin of the golden calf is an attempt to derail the plans of God to dwell with his people to reestablish holy ground in the midst of the earth before it ever gets started. It is, if you will, as if Satan were on the prowl watching this event and saying, I have to stop this tabernacle from being built. And the tempter comes, and the people fall once again. Now, Exodus 32, honestly, does not provide us with any nice, tidy answer to dealing with the anger of God. It's messy, and it's complex. Everyone is threatened with destruction. No idle threat, as we have said. There's the drinking of the pulverized calf. There's the killing of the 3,000. After Moses says, who is on the Lord's side? And the Levites gather to him. And apparently this execution of the 3,000 perhaps ringleaders. And then there is an undefined plague. Egyptian-like language. God not just bringing plagues on Egyptian, but God bringing plagues on his own people. But there's a helpful way to look at this passage in summary and understand it. Look on the front of your bulletin. Psalm 106 is a recounting of the sins of the people of Israel and the mercy of God. And in this particular portion, they made a calf in Horeb, verse 19, and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. Therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. God would have destroyed them all. Can I say one thing about that? That's worse than any of the plagues that hit the Egyptians. The worst of the plagues that hit the Egyptians was the death of the firstborn. This is the death of all. God judges severely the sins of his people and at least in this case, even more severely than he judged the Egyptians for their sins against the Israelites. Now, this is military language that is used here in Psalm 106. The sin of the golden calf caused a breach 
in the perimeter defenses or in the wall. Now, you all have seen movies, you've, you've, you've watched this in some way or another, you've read books about defenses being set up. Let's just think of a castle or a fortress. And the way the attacker is trying to get in is to, buy, to break a, a hole in that in some way, to breach the wall, to breach the line. Remember that God had established perimeters around the mountain. Don't come any further than this. God had established physical boundaries, but God had, in addition to the physical boundaries, shown the real thing, which was the moral boundaries. He had given them the Ten Commandments and said that by obeying these commandments that I have given to you, you will live and you will be protected from the presence of my holiness, which would otherwise destroy. Well, there, moral rebellion has created a breach. A hole has been punched in the line, and the wrath of God is pouring through that hole, about to destroy the people. Except Moses, appointed as mediator by the will of God, the chosen one, and affirmed in that role by the people who cried out to him, please, you talk to God for us because we can't stand this presence. Moses steps in to that breach to stay the sword of the destroyer. We have talked about this before. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the destroyer with a capital D, not a lowercase d a capital D. Who is the one threatening destruction here? God with a capital G. Yahweh with a capital J, Y. Moses steps in to absorb the blow, to block the anger of God. He prays, Lord, they're your people. You're disowning them. You're calling them my people. They're not my people. They're your people. They're the ones you redeemed. Remember what you've done. Remember what you've promised. Don't let the Egyptians say that you brought them out here in the wilderness to kill them. Remember the glory of your name, the fame of your name, and therefore protect this people. Remember the promises that you made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. And by the way, this is one parenthesis in this sermon. This is a great way to pray for your covenant children. Your kids are struggling, they're straying. This is the prayer. God, remember what you've promised. Remember what you've done. Remember the fame of your name and intercede for those kids. And at the end of the chapter, of course, Moses offers his life. His life for the forgiveness. Through this intercession, Through this work of Moses standing in the breach, we get one of the most remarkable lines in Scripture. And God relented concerning the disaster that he was going to bring on his people. God relented. Can I urge you to do something? 
This is a syrupy, sticky theological question. How can an omniscient, omnipotent God relent through the prayer of a man? How can his plan change? I'm going to ask you to avoid the goo of that question, at least for this morning, and instead appreciate with wonder and awe what God has done right here. There's no explanation provided for it. There's no, and this is, by the way, how this works out in the sovereign counsels of God. That's not here. A man steps into the breach, he prays for the people, he intercedes for the people, and God relents. What mercy. Dear friends, the anger of God is real. The anger of God is as real as your sin. If you wonder if it's real, it's as real as your sin. And I doubt that any of us wonder whether or not our sin is real. And it is being restrained right now, the anger of God, by the greater Moses, Jesus Christ, who bore the wrath and offered his life for yours. 1 Corinthians 10 says, do not despise that gift. Do not despise the patience that is being shown to you. Worship matters. This is about worship. It matters. It makes a difference in what you do with your life. And so Peter urges us to live lives of holiness and godliness, not presuming upon this kindness of God. And Paul says, avoid temptation. Endure it for your soul's sake. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, in the words of John, the propitiation for our sins, the mediator who satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf. Amen. Let's pray.